Hello, and welcome to this, the eighth edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest on this week's programme is Julian Bugini, author of The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, Do You Think What You Think You Think, and most recently, Every Town, A Journey into the English Mind. Julian's plan was to find out what the English really think by uprooting himself from his home in Bristol and going to live for six months in the most typical postcode in the land, S66 in Rotherham, Yorkshire. There, he read the most popular newspapers, saw the most popular films, went to the most popular holiday destination and bought his clothes from Asda. When we met, I suggested to him that this was a methodology more akin to anthropology than regular philosophy. Well, I think in terms of the methodology, I think it's just all over the place, really. I, I kind of imagine that anthropologists will sort of say this is anthropologically naive and sociologists will say it's sociologically naive and historians will say it's historically thin and so forth. I think, you know, the problem is that sometimes the kind of academic disciplines we have prevent people from trying to, you know, just step out of these very narrow silos and give a more speculative overview. So it's true it wasn't uh, a typically philosophical book in the sense of I sat in my armchair and thought about it. But I mean, mainly the reason for that was that I didn't want to write about what I thought people should believe or what I thought they believed. I wanted to know what beliefs and values people actually held. And to do that, it seemed to me, you both had to look at the kind of data where people tell people what they think um, through surveys and opinion polls and so forth. But you also need a sense of how these beliefs relate to how they actually live. Because I think it's in people's actions that the, the meaning of the beliefs they hold really come through. And why did you translate yourself from Bristol to Rotherham in order to do it? Couldn't you have written it in Bristol by talking to people around you there? I could have done it in Bristol, but I, th- I think I wanted to... F- first of all, one thing, I think I wanted to make it a kind of a break from my normal routine. You know, I didn't want to take for granted those things that I already thought I knew and if I'd stayed in Bristol there'd have been too much of my settled life there in the background and the other thing was I wanted to go somewhere that was as representative as possible Um, now to do that I used a a company that does demographic profiling as it's called and then they found the postcode area which contained the same kind of mix of rich poor single married young old and so forth as the country as a whole so, of course, you can't go anywhere in, in this country and say this is England in miniature, but some places are more representative than others, and this area seemed to be much more representative than those closer to where I normally lived. So, on your way to Rotherham, you're sitting on the train with your Kit Kat, and you write down some ideas about what you think you will find. So, what things are going through your head as the kind of things about the English mind you might discover? Well, this was interesting because when I went back over this list, I found that in many ways it wasn't wide of the mark, but I'd still learned something, and I'll come back to that in a minute perhaps. But yeah, I kind of thought that, you know, people really wouldn't think too much about things like religion, that despite all this talk you get in broadsheet newspapers about the renewed food culture, food would generally still be pretty poor, that people would actually still want to have families and children and value those things despite the talk about the the collapse of the family and that people would generally have fairly narrow limited horizons but be generally quite content within them and also I expected people to be perhaps a bit more conservative 
and old-fashioned. You know, the p- people in the news media always talk about what's changed, obviously because that's that's news. But I think we tend to miss what has stayed the same. And, and in lots of ways, as I say, I, I turned out, I think, to be right in broad terms. But the thing is, there's, there's, it's, it's like when you meet someone for the first time. You often do get a set of very accurate ideas about what they're like, that they're gregarious or that they're interested in music or you know they have a, a strange sense of humour. So in a sense, you, you know that person straight away. But as you get to know them more deeply, you, you, it's, it's again almost seeing the meaning of those things and how they come together and how they come to, uh, how they form a whole and so with this book although the particular elements very few of them I think I sort of like came to see as being wrong I think I understood better at the end of it and hopefully try and get the readers to understand better at the end of it how these things kind of fit together and form a kind of a, a fairly coherent worldview. And this trip took place in the summer of 2005 and within a few days of your arrival in Rotherham the events of 7-7 mm. happened and that must have that must have provided a lot of food for thought and responses in the people around you. Well, it was interesting because uh, obviously it meant people were talking a bit about the, the bombings and issues around multiculturalism. And you'll not be surprised to hear, but the, the way in which people <coughs> talk about these things has none of those kind of delicacies of uh, metropolitan sort of uh, middle class life, and certainly not the language I found initially very shocking. But that was one of the most interesting things because the way in which people talked about people of other ethnic groups, the language they used was, I would still say it is racist language in the sense that it's the kind of language which would cause offence. But I think the extent to which you could discern any racist intent behind it was very limited. I mean, I, I did meet some racists, there's no doubt about it. But the majority of people were... Uh, the main thing was they didn't really know many people or hardly or anyone even who was say a, a muslim or or even even jewish for that matter and so they talk about these groups in sort of broad crude terms uh, in ways that are insensitive but it's really just reflects their own ignorance of what this would sound like to someone who did have that background it didn't generally i think reflect any kind of real hatred but do you think, nonetheless, it's a barrier to to social cohesion and integration? Well, there is. But again, one thing I found myself doing, when I sort of like looked at things and thought, well, this isn't very good, you know, I, I don't really approve of this, I, I, I applied a bit of a test, which was to see whether the same things were true of perhaps, you know, social groups that I was more familiar with. And actually, I found that often that was the case. If you take this segregation thing, for example, it is obviously a problem and not a good thing that people live their whole lives totally unaware of other sectors of the population. But this is also true, I think, of a lot of uh, middle-class city dwellers mm. who basically hang around people like themselves send their children that make sure they move so their children can get to the school which is of people like themselves and again have have no knowledge at all or of, of the kind of people i met in rotherham so i think the extent to which people tend to self-segregate themselves mm. live amongst people they perceive to be like themselves and remain in ignorance of the diversity of the country is not something that you can pin solely on white working classes or for that matter ethnic minority communities i think we're all kind of guilty of it and so the the moral then is well how do we respond to that and i think in a, in a way and i think this is how my views changed a bit i think that there has been a tendency when people talk about multiculturalism to try and say that 
tolerance isn't enough. Tolerance implies putting up with things you don't like. Whereas really, we should be you know, embracing the diversity of our country. Now, as an ideal, I do support that. It would be good if we could embrace more of the diversity of our country. But actually, uh, that's not a very realistic goal. Um, that for a start, there are some things that people aren't going to like. You can't like everything. I mean, you'll basically have no self or sense of self-identity if you just like everything equally. But secondly, it's just not going to happen because, as I say, I think people naturally tend to gravitate to situations and places where they're surrounded people more like themselves. So I think that rather than try to push a real mixing up, a melting pot of society, I think what we need to do is make people feel comfortable with difference, that not feeling threatened by others, and then such mixing as that as will occur will happen naturally, gradually, slowly after time. It's not a very optimistic vision of a kind of a rainbow nation, but I think it's more optimistic than the pessimistic one which some people see, which is that we're, we're heading for some kind of clash of civilizations and we can't live together. Mm. Live and let live, I think, is, uh, is a British value uh, that people espouse, which I, I think actually is one that's genuinely held by most people. But it seems to me that, that it's possible to threaten that value because one, th- one of the things you found was that there was a widespread belief that rights were not uh, a universal entitlement, that there was something which in, in Britain had to be earned in some way. And this sense of, of separateness of communities, it seems to me, is tied up with that, that sense that you, know, if you, you may belong to a group which has put itself beyond the pale and therefore does not, does not benefit from or is not worthy of the same rights that... The broader community um, enjoys? Well, I think that is a danger, but I think you have to think carefully about how you respond to that. Now, I th- here's the mistaken way, I think, which we see in certain things coming from government, which is that the fragmentation of society is to be addressed by creating a very substantive nature of what it means to be British, what British citizenship means what British values are something we can all rally behind uh, you know no matter what our religion creed and so forth and I think that's never going to work because what it means to feel at home in this country varies enormously depending on whether that home is a city like uh, Bristol where I live or a, a larger metropolis like London or a small village or a small town there is simply too much diversity of how people view this country as their home for us to foister this uh, thick idea of Britishness on it. What you need to stop that fragmentation, I think, is something which is quite minimal, but it is robust, and I think those two things have to come together. So, in other words, just as long as, and the list will now include things like rule of law, you know, learn or speak the, the English language, um, no special privileges or pleading... And as long as those things are in place, then I think that we have to be a lot more sanguine about the extent to which people choose to be different. And I think a lot of the anxieties we have about uh, people pinning crucifixes on themselves or even wearing headscarves is uh, it's, it's responding to a real concern that we're going to end up too fragmented but it's misdiagnosing it and thinking that to counter that we have to as it were eradicate all these differences we've always been a nation of of great differences and that's been a strength I think. Moving on to how the English take their pleasure it seemed to me that binge and purge was kind Mm. of the message that came out of your your experience in Rotherham. Yeah I think in in all things um, food 
drink and sex too, I think. Uh, it's, it's a very peculiar thing. I mean, certainly with food, it was quite interesting. I asked people, you know, where's a good place to eat around here? And when people recommended places, it was always on the basis of it being good value. And there was a little gesture people made, which is like miming, as it were, two hands over this massive plate of food, you know. And, and that's what people would say. You go there, it's great. The carvery, you know, they'd list all the things you got in your carvery. You got your choice of chicken, pork, beef, you know, you got potatoes, roast and mash and all this kind of thing. 450, you know, and that was it. That was the clincher. And I do think, you know, this is why I get perhaps a bit more speculative. I think attitudes to that and alcohol, also things like sex, I think they reflect this kind of kind of Protestant Puritanism, really. That this idea that uh, we really shouldn't be enjoying pleasures of the flesh too much. That these things are, are f- essentially functional. And that if they stop being merely functional, you're doing something a bit wrong. So food is good value. That's a good thing because that's getting value for money, fueling yourself. Alcohol, even if the the point is to get absolutely plastered, you know, it's still a very functional thing. I mean, people, young people drink appallingly disgusting drinks. There's something called a turbo shandy, which is one of these WKD drinks, which are like luminous blue, mm. in with half a lager, and it turns bright green. And and they have that merely as a, a means to an end of, of getting uh, totally off their heads. And it's this sort of functional view of food and of drink in contrast to the more Mediterranean and I think almost perhaps more Catholic uh, countries, I mean, I've got Italian family, and over there, you know, food and drink, they're everyday pleasures, and you just enjoy them, and people don't go over the top with them, but at the same time, they don't feel guilty about them. I mean, in this sense of guilt, it comes back to it. I think what's interesting about it is it, it seems quite amusing when you look at the, you know, the, the huge portions and cheap value thing of popular culture. But I actually think the new foodie culture, which is more popular perhaps in the middle classes, in a way perpetuates this trend because it's still making food a highly moral matter. So now the morality has shifted from it's not so much about value, it's about like the purity. You know, you mustn't ingest anything nasty that may have some chemical trait or, or it mustn't have any sort of food miles and it's absolutely appalling to eat a McDonald's. We seem to find it difficult to view food and drink in anything other than quite moral <coughs> terms. One of the interesting ideas which your book introduced me to was the idea of the heft, and I had to, I had to look up, I had to discover what a heft was, but once you explained it, it seemed, it seemed quite a persuasive way of talking about people's comfort zones. Yeah, well, I, I came across this word because there was an old guy in the pub um, whose favourite programme was The Dale's Diary. It was about rural Yorkshire life. Which is, again, was interesting. I was in South Yorkshire, and um, people say from other parts of the country as well that in terms of identity, actually, regional identity is, is very important to people, often more than more than national. But anyway, this term heft was there to describe sheep. Now, I never knew about this, but apparently there are sheep which don't need any kind of fences or shepherds to keep them in their right place. Uh, what happens is originally, many go back many generations, uh, shepherds would uh, teach the sheep the area they can roam in. But the sheep, after a while, actually learn to keep themselves within these boundaries themselves. Well, they don't need a fence, they don't need a shepherd. And, and sheep that have learned this are called hefted. And it's, this gets passed on by generation to generation of sheep. And I just thought that actually this clicked with me when I was taking a holiday in Mallorca. Because I was doing all sorts of things while I were there, which was just 
the most common things people do. So I only read the Mail and the Sun, for example, because these are the most popular newspapers. And I thought I'd take a little holiday, and the package tour is still the most popular type of holiday. Spain is the most popular country. The Balearic's the most popular part of Spain, and Mallorca the most popular island. So I took this package tour. And I was just thinking about this difference between you know independent travel, which uh, again people like myself tend to think of as superior, and like the package trip where you're herded around and then you do feel like a sheep. And I thought, well, okay, I can see there's a difference here, and I can see why I prefer one to the other. But I don't think independent travellers are that different in the sense that they're a bit like sheep; they know their heft. You regulate your own travel by things like. Um, travel guides, so you, you buy the Lonely Planet, that tells you where to go. And even which countries does one go to? I mean, you know, why is it, for example, there are certain countries and areas of countries, um, it became a bit of a cliche that Tuscany was the place where the sort of Blair generation went, but it's no coincidence that people from the same kind of social background go to the same kind of countries. And I think all over the place you find that's true. We, the areas we live in, the restaurants we go to, the bars we visit, the books we read, everything we do is kind of like hefted in this way. We know what we're going to be comfortable with. We don't make a conscious decision about those things. We just have a sense of it and we just follow things. But the, of course the illusion is we think we're free individuals making these choices independently of it. Whereas anyone who stood back just for five minutes would notice that virtually all of us, the kind of things we do are very predictably the same as those of people with a similar social background. And did you get the impression that the English were a more hefted nation than, than others that you were familiar with? I don't know about that. I mean, there's always a question in this book. It's about the English, but how much is about the English and only the English. And I never really sought to answer that question. I, I tend to think that we sort of think too much about that as if it's important. We want to know what makes you know, the English different from the French or the Italians. Well, I think what makes a person different from another person? I mean, nobody has unique character traits. You know, you can break it down into various things, extrovert, introvert, aesthetic or whatever it might be. What makes a, a person an individual is just the combination of those things. And I think it's the same with nations. What makes uh, the English distinctive is merely the combination of factors. So when I identify the different factors, I'm sort of agnostic as to how distinctive they are and how far those things are shared. And I think that some of the things I, I identified, I think, were probably true of all northern European countries, some of all western industrialised countries, and some are just human nature. The heft one, I think, is probably more human nature than, than Englishness. Um, certainly I lived for a little while in Spain and people are, if anything, even more hefted there. And Italy, again, is a very kind of conservative society in that way. So um, I'm not sure we're more hefted than others. Mm. And you said earlier that you thought the philosophy did add up to something that was coherent, taken as a whole. There was there was some kind of coherence to it. It wasn't just a, a random collection of illogicalities and inconsistencies. Yeah, that's right. And that did that is where I did have to eat a bit of humble pie, really. I think, you know, I, I did... I'm used to reading newspapers, hearing opinion polls and doing what a lot of people do, which is like tutting and rolling your eyes and thinking, you know, how ignorant everybody is. And I, I guess, if I'm honest, I did think that um, a lot of my work would be about putting people straight mm -hmm. on their inconsistencies. And I found that, although I did disagere with quite a lot, it cohered much better than I thought it would. 
I mean, not all the elements are obviously related, so it's not like it forms a tightly knitted whole in that sense. But if you took any particular area, such as you know the political philosophy, which I describe as being broadly communitarian, it's the idea that um, the rights you have and the privileges you have are conditional upon you being a particular member of society, playing by the rules, signed up, etc., etc. That's very, very coherent, and there are very detailed academic versions of that which command great respect. And I think uh, the general public... Uh, on the whole, signs up to something very similar. So yeah, it was much more coherence to things than I thought. Where people go wrong, I think, is mainly about the facts that they appeal to, to support their beliefs. Uh, because people are often factually wrong. So multiculturalism, for example, people are just way off the mark on this. People routinely believe that the ethnic minority population in the UK is much higher than it is. They think that the number of uh, asylum seekers coming in is much higher than it is. They think there are more actual problems and crimes associated with it than it is. So people often get to wrong conclusions about what should be done because their facts are wrong. But if you actually probe underneath and look at the values which are informing them, then you find a lot of agreement. And you mentioned in the book that you've never felt wholly English you, mm. you're from mixed Italian English background and I wondered as you packed up at the end of 2005 to to go back to Bristol if you felt the experience had changed you and changed your perceptions of of the country you live in well I think there's often a, a tendency when people do things like this to overstate the extent to which they've been changed I remember one book a very good book I won't name it because it, it sounds critical but one very good book uh, at which the person concludes that having spent a lot of time in, in Italy you know that uh, they couldn't imagine leaving uh, uh, by the time their next book was out we found out they live very happily in the southwest of England you know people exaggerate that it was disorientating for a while it was hard to readjust because I felt that I no longer felt entirely comfortable with what I had been comfortable with, but at the same time, I wasn't going to adopt this uh, more typical life, which I'd learned to respect a lot more, but still wasn't really for me. So it was disorientating. But in a way, it goes back to the point about the, the hefts and the comfort and all that kind of stuff. You know, people know what suits them and what they're comfortable with, and you settle back into it. It's like having a travel change broadening the mind and changing you so broad terms i would say i haven't changed fundamentally but what has changed is i have changed my opinions on two or three quite important things i think the whole point about how we respond to diversity is the most uh, significant one of those but also I, th I think i do have a more of a respect for uh, the opinions of uh, of the masses, as people might disparagingly call it, I, I think that it sort of uh, pricked my um, pretentiousness somewhat and uh, uh, deflated any sort of uh, elitism I may have. Which is not to say I don't have any at all, because uh, I'm sure I do. But uh, I think I think I have. Uh, I haven't come to really love my country. I wouldn't say that, but I've come to be a little bit fonder of it and certainly more respectful. June Virginia, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.